Please be seated. Some of you might have heard the phrase, big doors swing on small hinges. Uh, The idea there is that big events in history are the result of sometimes the smallest decisions. Uh, I've been reading, I just finished recently, this book on 9-11, the history of 9-11. And on that day, nearly 20 years ago, two men came running to the gate at Washington Dulles International Airport in Virginia. These passengers were late, but the ticket agent saw that they were running and kept the gate open for them and said, come on through, come on through, you'll just make the plane. And they made it aboard American Airlines Flight 77. Unbeknownst to these ticket agents, these men would hijack the plane and fly it into the Pentagon, killing 125 people. Also on that morning of 9-11, there's Jeremy Glick, who boarded United Flight 93. Uh, He had planned to fly out the Monday before, on September 10th, to meet his wife. Uh, But due to some delays, he said, honey, I'm just going to take the next flight uh, tomorrow morning. And when Flight 93 was hijacked, he and some other passengers decided to take back the plane. Here's this man. He's six feet, 220, a national judo champion. And he takes action. And the plane crashes into a field, killing the entire, everyone who was on board. It did not reach its intended target, the U.S. Capitol, and saved probably hundreds of lives. And so you see, in one event, one makes the plane and kills hundreds in an act of terrorism, and in another, one makes the plane and saves hundreds in an act of heroism. The biggest events sometimes turn on the smallest hinges, and I'm sure there are all sorts of what-ifs in your mind about what would happen. What if I had just gone just this way, just a little bit, just a few degrees here or a few degrees there? how everything would have been different. And that is what we see this morning in the book of Exodus. Do we call that the book of Exodus was written to a generation that had forgotten the history of their immigrant forefathers? And Exodus was meant to give Israel that was in the wilderness now, uh, the second generation, a sense of who they are, their history, where they came from. And particularly, they needed to understand after their grumbling fathers and mothers had passed away in the wilderness, that God is a faithful God. They needed to learn that, and that God exercises his sovereign power for the good of his people, and he can do it in surprising and in small ways, using all sorts of people to carry out his plan. Uh, that's what we see in here, here in our passage, isn't it, this morning? We see three women of Different ages, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different social standing. All of them being used to deliver God's great plan of deliverance. And none of them had the faintest idea what they were a part of. 
history can turn on the smallest hinges. So let's take a look at some of these main characters in our story this morning. First, we see in verses 1 through 4, a faithful mother. A faithful mother. When we last left off in Exodus, it was desperate times for the nation of Israel. Worried by this rising birth rate of these immigrants, Pharaoh tried everything he could to stop them from overtaking Egypt. But he found that the more he oppressed them, the more they multiplied and grew. And so he devises this plan with the midwives, of the, the Hebrew midwives, Sifra and Pua, and says, when a baby comes and you're helping this baby be born, make it look like an accident. Kill the sons of this, this Hebrew people. But of course, they disobeyed. And Israel continued to grow. And having failed at slavery, having failed at genocide or infanticide, they just, he goes all in with genocide. He commands all the people in chapter 1, verse 22, every son, every Egyptian, every son that you see of a Hebrew, you have the right to kill him. He basically deputizes all these people, all the Egyptians to be vigilante executioners and says, have at it. And yet in these desperate times, a young Hebrew couple decide to marry. That's what we see in these opening verses. We see that the father and mother are both from the line of Levi, from the tribe of Levi. And this is going to be important because in the future, God will reveal to Israel that the line of Levi were kind of like the clergy of the people of Israel. In other words, Moses was pre-qualified for the service that God was giving him. He would be in the line of people that provides religious and spiritual uh, instruction for a nation. They were the mediators between God and man. And so we learn that he is pre-qualified for the service. And we learn later in Exodus 6 that Moses' father is named Amram and his mother's name is Jochebed. And they actually have a son. Now, Amram and Jochebed have at least two other children that we know of. When you read the rest of Exodus, you know, right here in this story, we know he has an older sister. And when we read another part of Exodus, we see that he has an older brother named Aaron who's three years older than him. But the decree of Pharaoh has gone out, death to all baby boys. And so you can imagine the scene when Jochebed is in labor what that mother was going through, what the parent, parents were going through at that moment. Mom and dad are there holding their breath to see what would happen. Waiting for the midwife to say whether it's a boy or it's a girl. And all that pressure of Pharaoh's oppression is there in the last push. And finally the baby comes forth. The midwife holds up the baby and whispers to them, it's a boy. In what should have been a moment of great joy and celebration in, the, in a great gender reveal party became a time of dread for these parents. In a moment, they had a decision to make. Would we obey Pharaoh? Or would we do what's right? But one look at the baby boy, and these parents knew what they needed to do. They saw that he was a fine child. Now, that doesn't mean that you know, Moses as a baby was fine, like he was really good looking or something like that. I think it meant that 
they saw that he was going to live. You know, Moses wasn't born with a halo over him. They just knew that this child was a gift entrusted to them by God, and they would not sacrifice it on the altar of convenience or political correctness. And so we're told they hide the baby for three months. She does all she can for him until she can hide him no longer. And maybe it's because after three months, the house-to-house searches are getting more prevalent. Or maybe it was just harder to hide this growing baby at three months. But whatever the case is, she can no longer keep him hidden. So she creates a basket for him, treats it with bitumen and tar to make it river-worthy, and puts the baby in the bank of the Nile. Now, some of you who have seen enough movies of this probably are picturing a wicker basket or something like that being placed into the Nile, but it's nothing like that. That word for basket there is used 28 times in the Old Testament, twice here, and 26 times in Genesis 6 through 8. Now, what's Genesis 6 through 8, you say? Well, it's the story of Noah, and it is used for the word ark, the ark. It's the same word. Just as Noah made an ark of gopher wood and covered it with pitch, here we see a basket of bulrushes covered with pitch. And this is intentional. It is picking up the theme of deliverance and salvation. Just as God delivered Noah up from the waters of death through an ark, so too with Moses. And so Jochebed, in this act of very creative disobedience, I mean, she obeys Pharaoh's law, doesn't she? Oh, baby boy, throw it into the Nile. And she's like, okay, I'm going to throw it in the Nile, but with an ark, encased in an ark. Now, I hope you don't picture Moses' mother here as this bundle of nerves, you know, crying profusely, oh, what am I going to do? I mean, I'm sure there were tears. But here's a woman of remarkable courage who responds in faith and trust in God over fearing this world. Look at, turn to one passage in your New Testament. Turn to the book of Hebrews. Have you turned there with me into, it's kind of a little hard to find, but if you get past kind of the series of New Testament books that start with T, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, then you get to Philemon and then you'll get to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 23. And it says this, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So who has this faith here? It's not Moses. This is talking about the faith of the parents. And you can turn back to Exodus now. This is how we are to interpret the action of Moses' mother. By faith in God's promises. By faith that they thought that God was worthy to be obeyed. And so they disobey Pharaoh. She is not afraid of Pharaoh's order. She's not afraid of what's going to happen to her own body. She cares about what's going to happen to her soul. So no, Moses' mother must have thought this through because baskets and pitch don't just show up at the riverbank. Now, could it be that she knew exactly where Pharaoh's daughter would bathe? Could it be that she knew the schedule of Pharaoh's daughter and said, hey, maybe she'll spot this baby off to the side and, and think that the river god of the Nile, the Egyptian god of the Nile, has sent this to her as a gift. I don't know. We don't know. The text does not tell us. But we do know that she is a woman 
Jochebed, who fears the Lord and in faith puts her baby up for adoption. Um, it's hard for us to comprehend what this mother went through, even though we kind of know this story. We know she, she's going to get back her son. But again, she has to give him up again, doesn't she? Into Pharaoh's household. I mean, it's hard enough for parents to give up their children to the lion's den that is junior high, you know? How many mothers and fathers become prayer warriors when they send off their children to college? And that fiery fear furnace. But with courage and initiative and trust in God, she took the avenues that were provided for her and gave her child to the care of God. Now, I think there is a whole Mother's Day sermon here, packed right here. Right? It could be preached on the faith of Jochebed and how she is in a long line of faithful mothers who gave their children away who let their children go i mean think about it think of hannah who gave up her son samuel to be raised in the tabernacle that he might be the deliverer for a kind of deliverer for the people of israel uh, think about when solomon had those two moms and they were arguing a this custody battle of, of over this alive child and when solomon says hey I got a sword over here. Let's cut this alive one in half. And then the real mother steps up and says, take the baby. I would rather give up my baby. I would rather give up this custody battle. Or just think about, most poignantly, Mary, who has a sword like driven through her heart as she beholds her son crucified. One pastor writes, sometimes the bravest thing a mom can ever do is to let go of the child that belongs to God even more than it belongs to her. Well, second in this story, we see not only this faithful mom, but a faithful child. We're introduced to Moses' older sister in verse 4. Most likely, this is Miriam, whom is, who is named later in Exodus. It's not clear how old she is here, but most people guess that she's anywhere from 6 to 15. I know that's a pretty big range, but she's not quite old enough. Like, she could roam freely. She's not quite old enough where she was expected to be working in the fields. And yet she's not so young that she can't carry on a conversation. I mean, she has been given the responsibility to watch over this baby boy. And she takes up this rather remarkable conversation with Pharaoh's daughter. So she's probably a little bit older. But boy, did she have an adventure in babysitting. When Pharaoh's daughter discovers Moses, what does she do? She takes action too. I mean, the chutzpah of this, you know, of Moses' sister. She says in verse 7, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Notice of the resolve of this young girl just to say something, to speak up. And just this one question from her moves along God's history of redemption. It ensured that Moses would be brought up by her own mother at a young age and trained at a young age and understood his Hebrew heritage. Now, there are some young children here this morning. Some of you are elementary age. 
and some of you are high school, junior high age. And I'm so glad that you are here with us this morning. We welcome you here at church and just know that people in the church are praying for you and we love you. But I want you to see what's going on with this young child. Don't you see it? It doesn't matter if you're six years old or you're 16 years old. You know, sometimes you might think, what can I do for God? Oh, I'm so young. I don't even have a cell phone or all I care about is my cell phone, right? What can I do for God? I'm, a, I'm just a kid. I'm just going to do my best. I'm going to get my good grades. And then I'm going I'm to play my video games and then I'm going to play my sports and then I'm going to have friends. I'm going to try to not get into too much trouble with my parents. But do you see what Miriam does? She speaks up in a culture that seems to oppose everything she believes. The law of this land is that babies die. Baby boys die. That's what the adults are saying, at least. That's what everyone who has in power was saying, at least, who has the power was saying. But Miriam knew it wasn't right, and she wouldn't go with the flow, so she, would not, so she knew she would, to do so would displease God. So she simply says, you need help finding a nurse for the baby? One simple question. She says, I know a real good one. And just that little decision to trust the Lord, to do what was right, put Miriam in the pathway of the much larger plan of God. And so just like her mom, she plays a part in delivering this deliverer. Third, we see in this story a compassionate princess. A compassionate princess. In verses 5 and 6, we are told that the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And perhaps she heard the crying from the basket and and, and she looked and saw this floating ark among the reeds. And she tells her servant woman to go and retrieve the basket. And all of us are probably way too familiar with the story because we kind of know where it's going. But if you're hearing this for the first time, you're wondering, what is going to happen? I mean, this is Pharaoh's daughter that's getting this, this basket. You're probably thinking to yourself, oh, no. I mean... This is a, the daughter of a genocidal maniac. I mean, what's she going to do? Maybe she says, hmm, I found a baby. And maybe she would say, hey, dad, look what I found today. And he would say, don't worry, little girl. Uh, I got this. Give, give him to me. I'll take care of it for you. That could have be what is happening, with that might, what might happen. But when she takes this basket, she sees the child and beholds the baby crying. With a collective sigh, we read that she took pity on him. The word here could be translated, had compassion. She does not simply have a brief tinge of sorrow and then gets on with her bathing. No, she too takes action. She gets a nurse for him among the Hebrews. She even provides materially for Moses' family. And at great cost, at great risk and defiance of her father, she adopts him. She takes him into the royal household where the book of Acts tells us he is instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Wow, this is a remarkable, remarkable turn of events. I mean, this would be like Adolf Hitler's daughter deciding to hide a Jew in her cellar. This is not daddy's little girl. 
She will not participate in his cold-blooded population control program. Rather, she's tender-hearted, and she has a maternal heart. She even gives him the name Moses, a name that actually means son in the Egyptian language, but also is the Hebrew name meaning drawn out from the water. The princess consciously honors his Hebrew origins of her son while making him legitimately Egyptian by adopting him at the same time. Giving him this name. Here is a Gentile who does not know the one true God, yet displays remarkable compassion. It is not without reason that a commentator describes the scene not as the parable of the good Samaritan, but as the parable of the good Egyptian. What a beautiful picture of God's common grace. Yes, church. And his ability to use anybody to carry out his plan. Thank God that people who don't know him are merciful and kind and generous. Sometimes we think, oh, they're just, everyone's an enemy. Again, in reading the accounts of those who survived 9 11, my heart can't go out but just well up with thankfulness for those firefighters who went towards those towers and saved people's lives and gave up their own. I can't help but be thankful for the numerous boats in the vicinity that in this, the greatest maritime work since probably World War II, they evacuated Manhattan Island or the office workers who carried their colleagues down flights of stairs. We should give thanks for every courageous compassion performed by those outside the covenant community. We are often the recipients of such courage, whether neighbor or nurse, and we should thank God for his gifts to us through them. Now, many of us are familiar with the story of Moses' birth, and it is truly a remarkable one. But have you noticed in these opening chapters of Exodus, it is really the story of five remarkable women. Now, you might say, well, you know, the the Bible is all about men and all that thing, all those things. But I would dare say that there's a lot of stories about really bad men. There are only a few bad men women in the Bible. You could probably name them on one hand. Jezebel. And then you're like, huh, who else? Delilah, maybe? Or maybe you would get to um, Potiphar's wife or Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab. Maybe that's, and that's probably it. I don't, I don't, you know. But most of the women who show up in the Bible do remarkable things. Sarah and Rebecca. Ruth, Abigail, Eunice, Priscilla, Mary. And I know a lot of women in our church are in a very busy season of their lives. They are working and they are caring for their children and caring for their families. And it can seem like making a difference for God is something you used to do or something, you know, you will do 20 years down the line. And you're just trying to get through the day. 
But mothers, let me encourage you to see that the great unfolding story of God's redemption culminating in the cross of Christ is being moved forward by women. Specifically by women doing one thing, taking up the noble role of caring for children. There are women here, you're going to do so many other things in your lives besides taking care of children. Some of you don't have children. Some of you have, you know, some of you, all your children have already left. And some of you aren't married. Some of you are married with, without children. And there's all sorts of things that women can do in the service of God. But isn't it striking that the first chapter and a half of Exodus moves forward on women simply trying to care for children? In his book, Men and Women in the Church, Kevin DeYoung writes, Shifra, Pua, Jochebed, Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter, God used them in mighty ways, in ways they couldn't fully understand at the time, all by simply loving children and protecting their little lives. And notice that only one of these women was the birth mother of the child at the center of the story. Women who, for any number of reasons, do not bear children of their own can still be mothers in Israel. DeYoung continues, I'm not suggesting that working with children is all that women can or should do in life or in the church, but we should recognize the Old Testament pattern and celebrate that caring for children will be one of the main things and one of the most amazing things many women will do with their lives. So mothers, let me tell you right now that your labor is not in vain. You do not see the end from the beginning. Here we see God's plan to save an entire nation turning on the hinge of a few women who love children that God had placed in their midst. You see, we live in this world which undervalues children just like Egypt. We live in a culture of death, don't we? And some of us might think, what can we possibly do? What can we possibly do? We're overwhelmed by this broken world. We feel so insignificant. We're no names. We're no names. But church, we can take up the mantle of fostering and adoption. We can be aunties and uncles serving in the children's ministry, investing God's word into the hearts of these young children. We can do what we can to be faithful no matter what age or background or upbringing we have. Moses was delivered by these three women that he might be a deliverer for an entire nation. But our story doesn't end there, does it? Because there's one character that we failed to mention from the story. And it's God. It's God, isn't it? Ultimately, God is the real deliverer of his people, isn't he? The gracious, sovereign, providing God, he holds center stage through these early chapters, even though he is barely mentioned. I wonder if you've noticed that about the opening of Exodus. There's this hiddenness of God's sovereignty running throughout it, almost highlighting and heightening our sense of his power. We might not think God is acting because he doesn't act in this spectacular way, which he will in Exodus. But he works providentially through the normal actions of normal people in every day-to-day life. 
Did you notice that? I mean, look, a man and a woman are married. They happen to be Levites. Jochebed happens to conceive a son. Miriam happens to be watching over Moses in the river. Of all the possible places the basket could have gone to, it happens to drift near Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter happens to see the basket. She happens to take pity on the child. She happens to take Miriam's suggestion of getting a nurse. Moses happens to be brought up as a Hebrew at a young age. And Moses happens to be brought into the royal household to be trained and educated. If, is this how you read the origin story of Moses? As so many happenstances and lucky coincidences. Apart from believing that God actively and sovereignly rules over our world, these verses become a mere celebration of, oh, Jacobet, look at her creativity, or look at Miriam and her resourcefulness, or, or look at Pharaoh's daughter and her compassion. And most of all, we chalk everything up to chance and luck. But if you're a Christian, that is not how you should read these verses. I assure you, that is not why it was written. The days of Moses' birth should have been the days of his death. The river that should have consumed him delivered him in, safely into the courts of his persecutor. He was born a slave and raised in the palace of an Egyptian king. And the way this whole story is constructed, the reversal of evil designs, all point to the providence of God to accomplish his, plans of sal- his plan of salvation through all sorts of ordinary means. God saved the child Moses so that he could save his children, the Israelites. And so from beginning to end, salvation belongs to our God. And isn't it interesting that as you're going through these early chapters, you don't hear a peep from the people of Israel. You don't hear them crying out or groaning out to the Lord until the end of chapter 2. Even before Israel cried out, God was at work. God was providentially at work. He was preparing a deliverer even before they asked in his quiet and hidden providence. And even while this world, in their hardness of heart, didn't ask for a deliverer, God, in his quiet and hidden providence, orchestrated the birth of a greater deliverer. You see, Moses was a savior, but he was not the savior. Long after the exodus, the Israelites were waiting for another savior to be born. And in the quiet and hidden providence of God, this prophet would also be born in a humble and difficult situation. He too would appear after nearly 400 years of silence from God. He too would be born under a death sentence where the king, a wicked king, would try to destroy all baby boys. He too would come out of Egypt. And he too would be given a name to match his destiny. They called him Moses because he would draw a whole nation through the water. And they called him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. 
Jesus, the greater prophet, would lead a greater deliverance. He would lead his people out from a greater captivity. And in accordance with God's perfect plan, down to the last detail, this child would live a perfect life and die a death, atoning, an atoning death upon the cross. The Lord Jesus would himself be the Passover lamb to die in our place. And on this hinge of history hangs eternity and heaven and hell. So if there are any of you today who are here this morning and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if there's any of you today who have not repented and placed your trust in Jesus, look to him today. Don't look at Jochebed or Miriam, Pharaoh's daughter. Or don't even look to Moses. Look to whom all these people are pointing to. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to the Savior from God's wrath. Look to the Savior from all your enslavements. Look to the greater Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are once again thankful for all the different things that you uh, reveal to us in your word. We pray, Father, that your word would land on soft hearts and that we would respond to your word. Help us to be faithful men and women in our day-to-day actions. Help us to be faithful young boys and girls to do what is right in a desire to honor you. Oh, Lord, we are very thankful that Moses was not our Savior. We're very thankful that Moses pointed points to a greater Savior in Jesus Christ, a Savior that is sinless, a Savior that will bear our sins, carry our sorrows, a Savior who laid down his life so that we could have life eternal. May Jesus Christ be praised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.